0: Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. If you're merely listening to this podcast on Spotify slash iTunes slash etc, then you'll miss out on the equations being written, so see the link in the description for the YouTube video. While you're clicking there, it would be great if you left a review, as I didn't find out until recently. Reviews radically help the promulgation of the podcast. Thank you in advance. Now for an extra quick note. Quick note before the podcast begins. What I found is that people who criticize string theory generally aren't physicists who have looked at the derivations of the equations of string theory, and thus they're simply parroting their criticisms from others by calling it, quote unquote, disconnected from reality and, quote unquote, a theory based on pure beauty. The beauty of string theory is evident when one studies it. And it's also false to say that string theory hasn't produced any physics. String theory is a true contender for a theory of everything, much more so than even loop QG which is merely a theory of quantum gravity. This year, I'll be exploring the flavors of string theory, such as type 2a, type 2b, with acute depth to give a sense of the naturalness of the equations. Personally, I think the word natural is more fitting than the word beautiful. Now, on to the podcast introduction. Professor Stefan Alexander is a theoretical physicist and a cosmologist at Brown's University, in addition to being a prolific musician. In this episode, we cover his theory of everything called the autodidactic universe, a model he developed in conjunction with Lee Smolin, as well as a few other luminaries listed here. The laws of physics can be approximated by matrix models, we talk about this, and Machine learning deals well with matrix models, so a natural question arises, is there a relationship between the two? Can the universe learn its own laws in a manner analogous to unsupervised learning, let's say, of a restricted Boltzmann machine? Click on the timestamp in the description if you'd like to skip this intro. For those new to this channel, my name is Kurt jai I'm a filmmaker with a background in mathematical physics, interested in explicating what are called theories of everything. From a theoretical physics perspective, but as well as delineating the possible connection consciousness has to the fundamental laws of the universe, provided these laws exist at all and are knowable to us. Generally, conversations on physics and consciousness tend to stay at a cosmetic level, not going past or rarely moving past even the double slit experiment or the Stern-Gerlach experiment. In these podcasts, we tend to delve into intricacies, into equations, sometimes into meticulous technicalities, and so forth, because number one, it's tedious to hear about the measurement problem for the 25th time. Number two, because it seems like the language or large part of the language at which the universe expresses itself is mathematical, then if one wants to understand the most profound enigmas of the universe, some mathematical facility is necessary. And number three, because you can handle it. Most of the time, I find that the public purveyors of science simplify, overly so, because they're still assuming that you're the average passive listener of, say, cable news. But what I found is that there's not only a hunger for in-depth, specialized conversation on these seemingly abstruse topics, but that the intelligence of the average listener, perhaps even the average person, has been vastly underestimated, that is there's a thirst, so that's like curiosity, and then there's the ability to quench that thirst, and that's something like intelligence or astuteness. Mainly, people have focused on the curiosity aspect while neglecting the brightness of you. If you'd like the notes from this podcast in PDF form, then check the description. There's also links to the Discord where conversations occur on psychology, consciousness, and physics. And there's a link to the Patreon, that is patreon.com slash if you'd like to support this channel, there would be almost no way for me to have conversations of this fidelity on the topics of consciousness, theoretical physics, string theory, loop, even geometric unity, which I'll tackle at some point, if I wasn't able to do this full time. The sponsors and the patrons are what allow for that, so thank you so much. Again, that's patreon.com slash Kurt C-U-R-T-J-A-I-M-U-N-G-A-L. With regard to sponsors, there are three. Algo is an end-to-end supply chain optimization software company with software that helps business users optimize sales and operations, planning to avoid stockouts, reduce returns and inventory write-downs, while reducing inventory investment. It's a supply chain AI that drives smart ROI, headed by a bright individual by the name of Amjad Hussain, who's been a huge supporter of this podcast since nearly its inception. The second sponsor is Brilliant. Brilliant illuminates the soul of math, science, and engineering through bite-sized interactive learning experiences. You can even learn group theory, which is what's being referenced when you hear that the standard model is predicated on U1 cross SU2 cross SU3. Those are called Lie groups. Visit Brilliant.org Toe to get 20% off the annual subscription. And don't stop before four lessons. At least that's what I found. The third sponsor is CuriosityStream, and they're joining us for the first time. There's something approximately like the Netflix for nerds, or the Hulu for history buffs, or the Disney Plus for the scientist in you. Go to CuriosityStream.com Toe, T-O-E, for unlimited access to the world's top documentaries and nonfiction series. More on them later. Thank you and enjoy this conversation with Stefan Alexander. I've been looking forward to this for quite
1: some time. Same here.
0: So Brian told me that I should look into you. And at first I just thought you were not interested in theories of everything, just a a physicist working in some particular field of physics. But it turns out that what you're interested in is almost exactly what this channel is interested in, namely theories of everything. You also surmise about consciousness, but that's more in your book. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk about. The Autodidactic Universe Mm will touch on some of Chern-Simon's modified gravity. I went back and read one of your seminal papers, Inflation, Brain Mm -hmm. Annihilation, from around 2001. Oh, yeah.
1: My old string theory days.
0: Yep. And then Quantum Cosmological Constant. I only got to skim that briefly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you have any questions for me before we get started? Let's dive in. The way that... This is meant to be treated as if you have an imbecile across from you in mm-hmm. office hours who's extremely curious. So I'm going to be asking you, can you define this term, this term, this term? So it's office hours, forget about an external
1: audience. Okay, gotcha. Okay. That sounds like that sounds like the problem is that I'm probably going to be the imbecile, but that's okay.
0: <laughs> okay, well, why don't you give the audience an overview of your autodidactic universe theory?
1: Sure. Well, it's, um, the theory is, um, you know, was started by in, for a couple of years of conversations between, uh, it starts roots with, um, con- independent conversation that Lee Smolin ja- and my, my friend colleague, Jaron Lanier, the virtual reality pioneer, we, we've been, all three of us have been friends for a long time. So, you know, we, as with friends, I mean, Jaron is a computer scientist, a uh, and other things, you know, multi-instrumentalists and, but anyway, over the, so, you know, we have our side chats, you know, we talk over the years um, about things, about matters that um, are scientific and not scientific. And over the years, it our conversation all coalesced into this, this um, thing about whether or not, well, first of all, Lee and John has over the years had their own side conversations about whether physical laws can can learn Um, physical systems could learn their own laws types that type of idea um, and use an idea some evolutionary theory Um, I kind of came in at it with Jaron and also Lee separately um, thinking about fundamental theories like you know theories of quantum gravity or unified theories and just looking at them structurally um, that the observation is that you know what one interesting fact is that if you look at, for example, string theory, and you look at loop quantum gravity, and you look at you know other approaches to quantum gravity, um, even the original ideas of supermembrane theory—the idea that the fundamental degree of freedom is really a membrane, not a string—and when people tried to quantize this membrane, it they ran into problems, and they found out that. Oh, look at this! This membrane theory um, um, could be properly quantized if you turn it into a matrix theory. So, at the end of the day, all of these approaches to quantum gravity pointed to matrix theories. Okay, and what do I mean by matrix theories? If I, I'm sure, to, you might want to want to know that. But
0: mm-hmm. so I'm curious. So, as far as I understand, I'll just mm-hmm. tell you, and then you can correct me because it, mm-hmm. it helps me mm-hmm. learn. Mm -hmm. especially because i put myself on the line my ego on the Mm -hmm. line and i learn better okay Mm -hmm. so as far as i understand with the matrix models you just mentioned that it solves a particular issue but another issue is created in that they're finite dimensional and what you want to do is take n to infinity
1: Mm -hmm. is that correct one of the things you can do to make contact with the continuum or of um for example um yang mills like theories which are um is that, if, yeah, that's right, when you take n, where n is the rank of the matrix, so I have a, if n is 2, I have a 2 by 2 matrix. So when n goes to infinity, the rank goes to infinity, that it does reduce back to known theories, like Yang-Mills theories, for example. Mm-hmm, Something that
0: occurs to me right now as I think about the, okay, let's so let's take n to infinity. Would that not be... A countable infinity whereas the infinities that we deal with with league groups and so on are uncountable they're the reals so how is it that we can take a matrix blow it up to n and get something that's something like this real continuum um
1: <clears throat> that's a good question um it's similar to you know when you you do a Fourier series you know you have us you take that sum and and you you, you look at basically the sum of sines and cosines. And then you, when you take basically N in that sum to infinity, that becomes the integral sign. So it's, a, so it's similar to the continuum um, um, hypothesis. Um, I see, I see. Yeah. Okay, continue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no pun intended. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so in a nutshell, the observation that I made with Lee Smolin and Lee made with me is that oh how interesting uh, matrix models seem to under underlie a, a couple of what we thought to be disparate um, approaches to quantum gravity or unification. String theory, loop quantum gravity, um, and other, other ways, um, you know, random matrix models. They all kind of seem and mem- membrane theory. They all point to these matrix models. So maybe we should take more seriously that that the matrix models themselves might actually be, well, not actually be, I mean, Banks, Fischler, Schenker, and Susskind, so-called BFSS, and I think IKKT named after um, some Japanese theorists, um, actually conjectured that M theory, which is supposed to be the, you know, the unification of all string theories, Um, M theory or the so-called non-perturbative definition of string theory, it was hypothesized to be a matrix theory. So we weren't saying anything new there, but to maybe extend that, extend it beyond even M theory to say that other approaches to quantum gravity um, might also have this. So that was one one observation. The second observation that me, John and Lee made um, was that if you look at the equations of a matrix model, it has a semblance to, you know, um, artificial, some, it has a semblance. I'm not, it's not identical, but it has a semblance to artificial neural network.
0: It resembles in how?
1: Um, it might be useful for me to then to write something.
0: Sure, please.
1: Um, so, and I'm going to be very um, schematic here. Um, sure. Because I'm writing from memory. And I, I so, okay. Um, so just recall that an artificial neural network basically tells me that if I have you know a simple two-layered, if I have an input. So here's my x. So x is a vector. It's an n tuplet right? Um, that I can, it can, you know, that e- think of each point here. Each dot is a neuron that could be connected, you know, in a forward way. Right. I can have connection to, let me call mm-hmm. this okay. thing, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, right? So, oops, sorry. my bad. I don't know why it's doing that. Um, are you able to hear any weird sounds? Yeah, like? no, okay. no, no. Okay. I just want to get right here. So the equation says that if I, if I, um, there's some output um, Y, right? And there's a weight matrix that determines how's, how, how, correlated of how um, connected these neurons are. So for example, X1, right? If I have X, you know, X oh, sorry, X1, and then I have um, Y1, for example, right? This WIJ will denote basically this is XJ and this is YI, uh-huh. right? So this basically tells me how every neuron is connected, um, you know, the output is connected to the input, right? And, and then, of course, there's some bias term here that basically helps out with, um, um, to, to further basically, you know, to help with bias in these connections. All right, so that's, there's a long story here um, about um, neural networks. Sure. And um, all right, so you know, this is very similar to um, statistical inference, right? If I basically have, um, in this case, a line, and I tell you the slope of the line, I can adjust the slope of the line basically to basically um, fit, to fit some data, right? Given an input, um, you know, the, the output will basically mac, you know, sort of um, maximize or um, the slope will basically maximize. In this case, if you try to get the best um, standard DV, you know, uh, mean, um, you can basically um, use this. This is a multi-dimensional version of statistical inference.
0: I see. All I right. see. Okay. Yeah.
1: Okay. Now, <clears throat> the mate, um, the matrix. So one thing to take notice of here is that mathematically, I'm basically performing some kind of linear transformation from one one vector to another vector, and the weights basically is this transformation matrix. That's one way I like to think about it, right? Okay. Okay. Um, so in a matrix model, um, what we have is something similar, not similar or um, but what we have is a situation where we have... So the analogy, first of all, let me, let me spell out the analogy. The analogy is instead of having neurons, um, that um are represented by vectors right okay um what with the idea here is that okay we have matrix we have matrices mm-hmm. which are basically tensor products of vectors so in other words i can for example i could take the tensor product of say two vectors x i tensor xj right and then i can have a matrix xij right so likewise i can I can have some correspondence where the equation of an artificial neural network, which is mapping the idea of a perceptron or an artificial neuron um, is represented as a vector. The idea here is that the matrices, right? Um, there's a sense in which I can, I can um, isolate some components of this matrix and I could freeze. And this freezing procedure again, is in spelt out in the paper, um, and it's a long story. Um, but, but I just want to spell out the basic idea. Sure. Is sure. Is that sure. I can basically isolate vectors in this thing, in this matrix model. And... What do you mean when
0: you say you can isolate them?
1: Mm. Okay. So let me let me say another thing here.
0: You mean like how they can be decomposed, and then you just pull out one of them?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So let me let's so in the matrix models, what we have is basically is let me actually write down one of these matrices. Okay. Um, X, so it's X, A, seven M, N. So, okay, what is this thing, right? So basically, it's basically, um, let's say that I runs from one to three for now, right? So this would be X1, X2, X3, and then I'll still have MN here, right? So... Um, So one thing I could do here is assume that MN is, say, um, completely diagonal, right? So I can basically make some approximation and collapse this MN, right, into some X. So in other words, here's XMN, right? And what I now want to do is basically only look at these components here, Mm
0: -hmm. the diagonal components. Okay.
1: I can play with that for now. And then you know, just look only at the diagonal components of this M, you know, this M N matrix. And there's something
0: okay? that allows you to say that it's diagonalizable.
1: Yes, there's something that allows me to say that, right? Um, and so that's 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 one that's one thing you can do. But there are other, there are, you know, one of the things that we are currently working on as we speak in the follow-up paper is exactly how to Turn this thing into a you know um, into a bona fide um, into a bona fide learning architecture similar to an artificial neural network, but the upshot is that if you look at the equation that I wrote, um, oh, why is it not allowing me to?
0: Okay, those matrices. From when <laughs> I was reading your paper, I, if I understand correctly, it's something like the BFSS matrix models. But mm-hmm. then, what I was wondering is, and this is my rudimentary knowledge, that the a more general form of BFSS is BMN, and it takes into account a turn Simon's term and so on. And it also mm-hmm. is not in Minkowski space; it's in PP wave, which to me sounds as if it's more general. So I'm curious, why didn't you use the BMN model? Why did you choose to use BFSS?
1: Good question. I mean, right now we're not choosing. In fact, we're not even choosing. We are just trying to figure out. Okay. The idea is that there are all these matrix models, as you said, BMN, BFSS, IKKT. What we're really focusing on is to actually liberate ourselves from really, um, we really want to use that as a motivation, but not yet um, commit ourselves to any one of those models, actually. So, the matrix model that we actually did um, commit ourselves to is something called a cubic matrix model. And that was actually authored by, um, you know, motivated by Lee Smolin. So the idea would be in this cubic matrix model is that you have, um, you know, you have a Lagrangian, okay, um, that has a matrix, let me call this thing um, a matrix X. And so now, but this matrix actually has a kinetic term. X dot square. Now I'm suppressing the MN indices here. So it has, okay, I'm suppressing it. So it has kinetic energy, and then it will have a potential that depends on X, except this potential is cubic in X. So it's cubic in a sense, because it's a matrix, it's a commutator, right, like this. Because matrices, remember, they're matrix values, so the products will be commutators. And as a result, the equations of motion of these matrices, you know, the dynamics of these Mm -hmm. matrices classically will be something that looks like x dot, right, is, there's there's probably some coupling here, let me call it lambda, it's gonna be lambda, you know, x comma x, because I, I have to take a derivative with respect to x. And if you look at this thing here, right? The idea is that, you know, if you look at this here, this is like, I wanna now think of this X dot as my Y, right? Mm, okay. And, and somehow this, you know, this um, X commutator, right? Could be massaged into something that looks like Y times a component of X. Right, that's the analogy here, okay. Now we're not there yet, okay. So the idea is that somehow the dynamics of a matrix model is similar to the dynamics of like a, you know, of basically how a neural network um, is able to learn um, to learn maybe in a supervised way. So in other words, if I present um, the theory with an output or something known, so like a known solution. Yeah. The idea is that can the theory maybe spit out new solutions? Okay. Or for example, here's one, one thing we're playing with. Um, imagine that these matrix models could spit out realizations of the standard model. So in other words, because they're n by n matrices, you know. Um, so therefore, it might correspond to a group SU n, where special unitary group n. Then you can imagine that basically two 3 times SU2 cross U1 may pop out as solutions of this theory. Okay. Um, and the idea would be like, given that we know that this is a solution, right, you think of that as the output. The same yep. way we present a picture of a cat or a dog and have the a neural network learn that. The same way we, uh, we're using a matrix model and the dynamics of the matrix model itself, right, as a learning. Um, architecture so there's nothing external to the system it's sort of like you know in it's part of the system itself via its dynamics its equations of motion Um, and the idea here is if you if you're on a one-to-one correspondence between a learning architecture via neural networks um, and the dynamics of the matrix model if we're able to make this correspondence between x and and you know this Uh correspondence okay right um, so let me see if I can make this a cleaner statement here. So on one side I have a artificial neural network, and, right, it has dynamics, Y maps, in, in, I'm sorry, you know, input sure. goes to output. And then what happens is that, what's going on here? The weights then get adjusted. So the weights are the things that actually get adjusted in this learning, right? The weights get optimized. Likewise, if I have a matrix model and then there's something like the standard model as a solution, can we use, can we use, um, can we use the dynamics? Can we use, um, let me see, hold on a second.
0: In the paper, did you focus or restrict yourself to restricted Boltzmann machines or did you try out others?
1: So far we, um, we, we restricted ourselves to um, hot feel like models, which um, in some cases can be adapt you know can be made um, can have a semblance or you know RBMs restricted both machines. I
0: see. And there's um, a, the reason for that is just simplicity.
1: The reason for that is um, generality. Generality and and um, it's yeah and simplicity at the moment, but we're definitely keeping an eye out for other other ways. But let me so this that's right. So the idea here is that this correspondence here is instead of input output via the you know, um, artificial neural network, right? Um, the matrix model the the diff- the input now would be the dynamic like the equations of motion. So we use the equation of motion itself as a learning mechanism. And the idea now is that what are the weights? How are the weights being adjusted? And we, we, the idea here is that the things that get adjusted might be the parameters of the standard model. Mm. Because one of the big unresolved things in, in um, theories of everything and like string theory or even grand unified theories is that you can spit out solutions or realizations of the standard model. But as you know, because of the la- this issue of the landscape it's hard to tune those parameters. So we're saying, okay, embrace that. But really what's going on, maybe it's that the universe is actually learning and you know, um, it somehow you know, finds a solution. If the solution is stable in some sense, stable meaning that it's, it's because these weights are being adjusted. Um, and the idea could be that um, these weights that are being adjusted Will correspond to the parameters of the standard model so it's a big dream at the moment Uh, Um, and it's a research program but we're kind of in the middle of it right now
0: you know while you work with lee lee has this idea of evolutionary black holes and that in the genesis of each black hole is another universe with differently tuned constants and it's predictive in the sense that if we're in the typical member of the space of universes, we should see certain formations of black holes be maximal because the universe is constantly trying to maximize the amount of black holes it creates. Now, is that similar to this? Was this spawned by it?
1: Good question. Can can
0: that be derived from this? Is it distinct? Yeah.
1: I mean, so Lee, um, to my memory, you know, was the person that came up with the landscape um, idea in that, in that, in that, in, stand, in that um, picture of black holes spawning and being used as um, a mechanism to determine not to determine but to to populate this landscape um, with different parameters of our standard model for example so of the coupling constants so it's um so th- that I would say this is um in that spirit for sure because obviously for many years I've been talking with lee about, how do we get around the issues of how theories might determine the, the values of the standard model and what mechanisms um, exist? So one of the things I paid a lot of attention to when I worked in string phenomenology, right, which is how string theory can give us back the real world, um, was basically, yeah, I mean, how, you know, this was a big question. Um, and one way out, of course, is that if string theory gave you something like, um, um, like, like eternal inflation. Then the idea there was that the the, va- the different parts of the universe that are inflated would populate the stamp. You know the different parameters, and we happen to be living in one of them. So that's one. You hit the jackpot type of idea. Mm. Um, the other one. So, but you know, I've always kept an open mind about other alter other ways of thinking about maybe there's something about the theory itself that's determining this. And so the idea here is to really simply put a learn to think that maybe there's some kind of learning in the, in the sense of an artificial neural network um but instead of it being a neural network is the degrees of freedom instead of being a neural network it's actually the matrices which are now the fundamental degrees of freedom mm. that are playing the role of the perception perceptrons mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then the weights are being adjusted the hope is that it's going to be the parameters of the standard model that's it. that's it interesting but but well, one, out, one out I would say that to, get, to give myself an out here is that a quote from Albert Einstein, you know, if we knew what we were talking about, we wouldn't call it research. So, so there's a part of me that we're still confused about a couple of things, which is why it's great talking to smart people like yourself. So,
0: <laughs> As I just read the title of the paper before I actually dived into it, what I thought may, sorry, I read the abstract of the paper before diving into it, I thought perhaps it was something like, okay, the weights change and the weights change in such a manner that if you follow them, they look like particles along a trajectory. That's interesting. Tell me more about that.
1: Um, That's interesting.
0: With each pass, there's
1: obviously a changing of the weights. Mm -hmm.
0: Can this changing of the weights be seen as a trajectory? And then if so, can that trajectory map onto what we think the particle's trajectory should be?
1: That's a great, no, 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 that's a really good idea. That's a really good idea. And let me think about it and I'll get back to you. That's a really good idea, actually. Yeah.
0: Hmm.
1: In a sense, you know, a way that you're right, you know, because if you think about this, let me say one thing about that. Actually. Sure. So let me um, get back to this, um, uh, this share thing. So one one way to think about matrix theory, so, you know, to give some, because they are these abstract matrices. Now let me imagine that I'm in three dimensions. So I have, um, you know, X, sorry, Z, X, Y. And now I'm gonna put a particle in three dimensions. So I'm gonna call this the location of this particle. I'm gonna give it, it's of some vector X from the origin, right? And obviously I can look at the components of this vector Right. So let me just. uh, um, So there's some component of the vector. I'm going to take that vector sign off, and label a component x i where i goes from one to three. Right. So x one is x, x two is y, x three is z. Right. Um, It's good. So now I'm I'm going to now think about this particle confined to live on a sphere. Okay. Right. And now the sphere has some basically some um some basic area unit area okay good now the picture in string theory is that actually these matrices correspond to the correspond to the configuration of a of a of a, a particle in string theory called a d0 brain. so actually this will be a zero dimensional um particle but it's fuzzy mm. so it So what happens is that in smooth continuous space times, XI is just some vector that will denote any any position on my surface. But the fact that XI and XJ, for example, don't commute, it correspond to these D zero brains. So the idea is I have these D zero brains sitting around here and there are strings that basically are attached to these D zero brains. So that when they cross each other, um, you know, brain one, um, the D zero particle, this is a D zero brain, right? Yeah. D corresponds with Dirichlet, meaning that a string ends on it with a Dirichlet boundary condition, and it ends at a point, right? So then you can now focus on the, the point particle, but it differs from an ordinary point particle in that it doesn't commute. The same way X and P don't commute in quantum mechanics. In this case, X one and X two is not gonna commute. So what that corresponds to this thing called? Can I make a yeah. quick aside for the audience, please, they please?
0: Whenever you have a DP brain, so P M just is an integer, that means the spatial dimension. So if you ever hear D six brains, it means it's a seven dimension because you have to plus one for time. So right now D zero essentially means point, but you could still have world lines, which is what I believe is captured in the BFSS Very nice. model. Very
1: nice. So like for what you just said, this will be a D two brain, and that will be a membrane. For example, yeah,
0: just it helps clarify sometimes these small terms. I know when I was learning, which by the way, just saying so you know, off as a confession, Stefan, I, I I try my best to study for each interview assiduously. And this one, there was a personal family matter that I had to get to, and so I put a monkey wrench in my studying for this. And for the past ten days or so, I've. I knew nothing. I knew no turn simons. I knew no Pontiagen. I don't even know how to pronounce that. I basically had to learn all of this, and I still know a modicum of it just to prep for this. So even before this, I didn't know what a D zero brain was. So I'm saying this because these are questions I had, and I'm sure the audience as they're watching would have similar questions.
1: Wonderful, right? So that's as you correctly pointed. A D and a D one a D one brain would be a strain. That's right. And th- therefore, D D0 brain will be a point particle. And so the idea here is that the, is that the D0 brain is a, the matrix that I just talked about, matrix yeah. theory, corresponds to the position of a D0 brain in a non-commutative or so, so-called fuzzy space time. So that's a nice picture to have in your mind when we're thinking about matrix theories, what they could describe. They're describing the motions of these D0 brains but in a space-time that's not commutative. Now, we're not, it's not only describing that, I mean, that's just one limit of the theory where it's doing that, but it's a useful thing to think about. And another way you can think about it too is um, the membrane, for example, you can think of it basically as a collection of d zero brains that come together to form the membrane. So the basic building blocks in this matrix theory are these, these zero brains and the things they can do. And why is that interesting for the insight that you had there? because when I think about the interaction of these zero brains, for example, it corresponds to the commutator XIXJ, right? And if this is in some comparis- con- correspondence to WIJ, the weight matrices of a learn that you're talking about, then remember a potential, a potential energy, right? Determines basically the trajectory of the particle. Yeah. so I think you I think you have a, it's a really nice insight you have so I definitely will take it seriously and and think about it that correspondence.
0: You know sometimes I say that it's it's often useful for people who watch this podcast to watch it once and be befuddled and not understand. and it's basically in the second passing that you get the true understanding. The, re- the way that I like to think about it is that one is thirsty like they're curious they're they're inquisitive and so they want to drink. But often it's it's best often it's not always the case. Often it's best to try and drink from the fire holes, not because to you're gonna fail drinking from the fire holes, but at least the point is to get wet. I think Wheeler said that. People are trying Mm -hmm. to drink, but the point is to get wet. So how about I'm gonna take a couple sentences from your paper with this Mm -hmm. abstruse, unfathomable language for most people, then we're gonna break them down term by term so that afterwards people can go through and, and decipher it and understand what was meant. Sure. OK, so I believe this is just the abstract of the Churn-Simons modified GR. So chern simons modified gravity is an effective extension of general relativity that captures leading order gravitational parity violation. So first of all, there's Churn-Simons. We're going to explain that. Effective extension, going to explain. Leading order, going to explain. And gravitational parity violation. So what is Churn-Simons?
1: Very good was named after um, of course um, the authors um, someone who I, who I consider a friend and a mentor Jim Simons, um, mathematician and um, billionaire philanthropist um, and polymath mm-hmm. <laughs> and overall great an overall great guy um, um, he's, he's one of actually he's one of the most humor, funniest people he's like a, you know people I know he <laughs> He just he's um he he makes me anyway. So Jim is um he makes me architects. Yeah, makes me laugh. Um, and of course his um his um collaborator um churn. Um, so Chern Simons is based on this piece of math, um, which is magical piece of math, um, and that basically has to do with something called um. Invariant forms. Okay, so if I give you a manifold, a, a, a manifold, you know, can I characterize? Um, can I characterize um, properties of this manifold? And in, in some cases, topological properties of the manifold. So, for example, one thing you can, if you have a donut, you can characterize how many holes a manifold can have without, no matter how much you deform the manifold locally. Can right, there's an invariant which mm-hmm. is the number of holes that it has. An invariant because no matter how I change coordinates, I, whatever I do smoothly to this manifold, this thing's going to be so. Is there a way to mathematically measure these types of topological things? And what Jim and Simons and Chern's discovered was a new way, a new a new characteristic class, um, called a Chern Simons, a new invariant called a Chern Simons. And what's special about it, um, for physicists. Is that it's um, right? If you know the degrees of freedom already, like of a gauge theory, for example. So now let me get down to earth here. So if I give you a gauge theory, the gauge theory is described like like electromagnetism or Yang or the standard model by a connection, right? So or a gauge potential or the photon field, right? The photon field is this thing called A mu, Mm -hmm. right? And the Chern-Simons theory says that if I give you Can you see this? No. Uh, All right, so I'm not going to share a screen.
0: Um. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Razor blades are like diving boards. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus, one hundred free blades when you head to h e n s o n s h a v i n g dot com slash everything and use the code everything.
1: So we're informed that if I give you an electromagnetism, a mu, when mu runs from zero to four, this is the right of x, x, um, right? It's a four-dimensional object, right? So. The zero component of this is some scalar quantity. And then the X, Y, and Z will be the spatial part, I. So this is a zero, and this will be AI. Right? Okay. So that'll be four dimensions. Now, this, this thing is actually, in electromagnetism, um, I can use this basically to determine, basically, the electric and the magnetic fields, right? Mm-hmm. So that, but it's all... All the, all the information of the electromagnetic magnetic field is contained in Ame, which is a connection. They call it the connection because if I take covariant derivatives of this connection, or I take, you know, this, if I move this around, this connection around some, some um, in a gauge theory, in other words, and I could define curvature. Wait, this thing is, uh, that's weird, okay. So I'm going to start again. Uh, you can define this so-called field strength tensor. I know this is review for a lot of people, but just to be for completion. And basically, by taking derivatives um, of um, where this is partial derivatives with respect to zero, x, y, and z. Yeah. I can define this object. So here's yeah. a beautiful thing about Chern-Simons. Chern-Simons theory tells you that if I know f mu nu and I uh, and I can get it from a mu. I could define this invariant in three dimensions, which is just a, let me say, tensor F. And what I mean by this tensor, it's really an anti-symmetric tensor product, right? So the Churn-Simon's it invariant- like wedge called, it It's like a Let me call it the wedge product. Okay, very good. It is a wedge. So I, I just, I didn't want to mystify people, but is what we call a wedge. That's right. So A wedge F is in fact related to this, tr- proportional to this signs simons variant. And this thing, a, a wedge F, they appear to be local quantities. They are, when I say local quantities, they're not topological, right? Mm-hmm. But when mm-hmm. I take the wedge product, right, and I integrate this over, like say, if I have four dimensions and I take a three-dimensional boundary, M3, yep. M three. That basically, this thing is going to be. This thing is an invariant, right? Um, it's going to measure some kind of topological. It's going to measure a topological invariant.
0: Okay, and when you say right? it's an invariant, do you mean it doesn't matter which M three you take, you'll get the same value, or what? Um, like what exactly is being invariant here? The value of this? Over yes. What? The, yeah. What so if this changing?
1: thing is some, if this thing is some, yeah. If this thing is um. You know, this thing is some, some um, um, let me see. It's some integer modulo something which I'm not remembering right now, but basically this um, integer modulo something, which I forget what it, what it is, is, um, is the invariant. Um, so that's, now that's the math side of it. And I'm by no means a, dif- um, a differential geometer. I'm just a physicist. Um, I can just now tell you, so that's what that is mathematically, but there's a lot to it in the math literature, right? And right in its right. own right, it was a great math, it was a tremendous mathematical discovery. But the thing that's amazing is that Chern-Simon's theory has found itself at home in, you know, Nobel Prize winning um, um, discoveries in physics. Like when Jim and Chern were coming up, they had no idea it would actually be applied you know they just made this mathematical discovery um and now like you know anywhere from the fractional quantum hall effect it's it's you know it's found there um in the standard model it it's it's a key it plays a key role in establishing anomalies and anomaly cancellation in fact the chern simons term i can say something even cool about this Mm -hmm. in the standard model the churn simons form, it's called a churn simons form, which is, as I said, a wedge f, right? Um, um,
0: that's for of a certain dimension, correct? It's like one dimension in, yeah. for this, or to so. In this wed- case,
1: this is in three dimensions. Yeah, oh, I see. I see. Let, let's be in three dimensions. It could be also in four dimensions, three or four dimensions, right? Ah, I didn't. So know. a wedge f, right? So um, there's a, so this a wedge f here. Um, and it turns out that it's proportional to a, ki- a current. So in the standard model, we have currents, right? You know, the electromagnetic current. Um, and one of, the most, one of the most important things in the standard model is that these currents are conserved. So for example, I look at you know current going in is equal to current coming out, which is a statement that D mu of the current J mu, right, right, is zero. Right. But, you know, this comes from Maxwell's equation that says that, you know, um, this is basically coming from the statement that D mu, F mu nu, right, is J nu, right? So if I take another derivative of this thing, then by definition, you see, it comes from Maxwell's equations. So what's important here? It turns out that this is no longer the case in um, the standard model when I turn on quantum corrections. Um, this is a major, this is a so-called the ABJ anomaly. But actually this can be when I turn on quantum corrections, this is proportional to D um, d of the turn Simons. I'm being schematic here, OK?
0: Yeah, and when you say when you turn on quantum corrections, what do you mean by that? Um, you, mean you add a turn Simons term?
1: Very good. When I, to me, to say, when I, when I say turn at quantum corrections, is that if I look at basically, um, say, the interaction of, um, um, in quantum electrodynamics, if I say I look at a photon, that basically, um, you know, I can take, you know, an electron, and it could scatter off in, you know, um, of a photon, right? This is like an electron, e prime. Um, I can imagine, like, doing things like having another photon leg here, right? Mm-hmm. That will be a quantum effect. And this mm-hmm. is now starts looking like something called um, well, but you can have other quantum effects, uh, uh, so-called loop diagrams. And the one, there's one special one called a triangle diagram, like this, where I have an electron loop, for example, going around, going around, and then um, photons coming in like this. So I can have basically this type of quantum effect. This quantum effect, if you go and calculate it using Feynman's you know, um, rules, will give you this thing here. I see. And this is the famous result of uh, Adler, Bell, and Jakeve, Um uh, the ABJ anomaly. So it turns out the standard model will do this, and this is not good.
0: Yeah, and this is not good. Why? Ah. Uh, it's What's not good because
1: deal? the big deal there is that it actually, um, it violates the fundamental principle of quantum mechanics, which is it violates unitarity, the, the conservation of probability. Um, um, so you can probably see where this is coming from, because if you can now think about this loosely as the probability current, right? then I now, this is no longer zero and in quantum mechanics, the probability current has to be conserved, all right? So so it turns out that Chern-Simons theory is a part of the standard model, right? And how it just so happens though that the standard model, all the contributions of all the currents correspond to all the different forces completely cancel. So when I sum over all the currents, okay, um, I sum over all the anomalies, it turns out that they, they it vanishes in the standard model. So that's what makes our standard model quite unique, actually, mathematically, that, that it cancels anomalies. So that's another place Chern-Simons theory shows up, okay? And then the, the other place it shows up is actually in string theory. In string theory, the Chern-Simons theory shows up to actually, actually in a magical way, it also plays a role in canceling the anomalies in string theory as well. It's called a Green Schwartz mechanism. Right, right, right. But Chern Simons gravity now is another place um, that I played um a role in in pushing over my career as um a, a way of a new way of not a, a a way of thinking about gravity that has the Chern Simons term in it.
0: Can we go back to the other page where we have the anomaly? This one? Before that. Okay. See here- Oh my God, this is a mess. I need to- Yeah, that's fine. fine. Okay, Okay. (laughs) you can see on the right-hand side, what an anomaly is, is when there's a violation of the conserved current. But I'm unsure, is that all the anomalies are? Are there other types of anomalies other than quantum anomalies? In other words, whenever someone says there's an anomaly, are they always referring to that the right-hand side is no longer zero?
1: Very good. So let me, um, um, good question. So let me just say another, in general, if I, this is a general statement I'm making about anomalies, okay? For any current um, that is conserved, that's right, that is conserved, I'm going to put on the right-hand side the letter A. If it's not, if it's not equal to zero and there's an A, um, that A is called the anomaly. That's literally what it means. So when A is zero, then the current is conserved. And the question you're asking is, can an anomaly arise um, in a non-quantum way? Mm -hmm. Um, That's a good question. I, you know, So one thing, the calculations that are done to determine the anomaly, to my knowledge, are all all quantum um, uh, considerations. Um, But I see no reason why you can't, you know, in some theory, which I I can't recall right now, generate an anomaly classically.
0: Okay, so another question that Especially undergrads, tasks I know I had, is let's say you have the Klein-Gordon and then they say, well, it's not unitary. It doesn't conserve probability across time. Well, what's the big deal about that? Because, so what if you add some extra, let's say, lumps on the probability yeah. distribution? Why can't you just simply constantly reweight it down to normalize it? So why can't you normalize it at every given infinitesimal moment? is my question making sense do you understand or should i restate it you could
1: always that's right you can always renormalize that's what we call renormalizing that's you know you can always renormalize um but if you find yourself in a situation that even when you renormalize it still gets violated then you're in trouble
0: I see i yeah, see yeah so yeah. is there a way of determining a priori whether that a on the right hand side at the bottom equation is renormalizable or is that some large prospect of many people it takes their lives sometimes or is this fairly simple to see this is not renormalizable
1: very good um that's right so the very good the a that's generated um actually has a divergence as well and that that divergence when i say divergence i mean it. Uh, there's an infinity when i actually you know take um when I integrate out, when I integrate to, um, you know, to high, high momentum, right? In this, because remember this A is coming from the internal legs. Um, and that, no, so I would say that that's um, getting into, um, you know, um, no, this, this is a question, the question that I think this is pointing to is, what is it about the anomaly that's leading you to deduce that, you, that the theory is not renormalizable, Oh, i no, sorry, that the theory is not unitary. And this has to do with something called the ward identities. And what, the minute you have these anomalies, you can show that these ward identities, um, which are identities having to do with the unitarity of the theory, um, you know, is violated. I don't, yeah, I, w- I don't have a, I, I need to think more about that. I don't have an intuition for it. It's, sure. a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a well-defined question, it's just that. Um, yeah,
0: sure. And then also looking at this middle equation, the one that has the sum with the D and the CS, why is it a difficult problem to get rid of an anomaly when it seems like, well, if my understanding is correct, you add a certain term to a Lagrangian, if it's as simple as that, in some cases it is. So you add a certain, in this case, a Chern-Simons term, perhaps then an interaction term with the Chern-Simons term, but you add a term nonetheless, then you go through this standard Noetherian identity to get the charge current. And then you find that you get an extra term, which completely cancels it. So why can't you just, why is, can you not just reverse that process to try and find out what terms should I add in order to cancel this? Or is that like highly non-trivial?
1: No, no, we do have these anomaly canceling conditions, um, in the standard model. And what that boils down to is for the anomalies to cancel in the standard model. The charge assignments, you know, the way you identify the charges of the quarks, the leptons, and you know the quarks and the leptons, um, and the color of the quarks, um, they um, and the gauge groups. Right? that's what I mean by the color, the isospin, as well uh-huh. as the, you know the charges. Um, the charges, the assignments, the fact that the quarks have one, you know, fractional charge, is precisely because. When I add up the anomalies from all the, the other interactions, um, it, re, re, it, it. So those charge assignments are the things that actually are allowing this anomaly to cancel.
0: I see. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Stefan, I want to know what do you consider to be a theory of everything? The reason I ask this is when I asked. So, well, some people say, well, it needs to incorporate consciousness or it needs to explain the origins of the universe. Some people just say, unify gravity in the standard model. Mm. What does a theory very... of everything mean to you?
1: It's a really good question. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I have... Um, my ambitions now are... Um, I would say that, for example, if string theory... Um, was able to provide like as a solution and a, you know, that meets the standard of what a solution is in string theory that gives us back say something like, like an early, like at the very least an early universe scenario that is consistent with observation. Um, maybe it's inflation, maybe it's an alternative to inflation. I would literally say that string theory therefore modulo its difficulty and tell me why that solution is preferred over other solutions would be a theory of everything. All right, uh, um, and and then I would uh, and then I would add about you know the, the more like the questions of like okay higher level organizational properties of matter, including life and including consciousness. I have some thoughts about that too, but I would say that um, you know at this level I would call that a theory of everything. So it
0: sounds like that's been a a common thread throughout your entire career because around 2000, 2001 or so, but you've been working mm-hmm. at it probably in 2000, you had the inflation of the D brain D brain annihilation. Mm-hmm. And that That's seemed, right. At least seemed to produce something that looks akin to the big bang. And I believe you used some data to show. I'm not sure if you, if you made a prediction and you showed how it matches with the prediction. I'm not sure about that, but either way, that sounds like a through line.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, I was trained as a string cosmologist, meaning that um, um, you know, someone that knows both string theory and enough cosmology, enough of each, okay? But certainly not a master of either. Um, to, because back then, this was the year uh, 2000, 1999, 2000, the call was, um, can we... It, 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 some, people, some people felt string theory wasn't developed enough. Some of us felt it was developed enough to then ask questions of, can we reproduce something like cosmic inflation? So I went to my first postdoc trying to do that. Um, and that was my take on how to do that. So I guess the fact that it was published meant that you know it met some standards. Um, and, but it, one of the things it did do was it opened the floodgates for other string theorists. And I certainly wasn't the first and the only one. Um, um, but anyway, opened the floodgates for others to then Improve or d- develop d- different ideas, but similar um, ideas, you know, with string theory. That somehow these D-brains are playing some role in um, in describing the early universe and four dimensions out of ten dimensions. Did you do that work at UBC? Very good. Um, I I spent a lot of my time thinking about that idea when I was at UBC as a grad student, um, but then I. Really did it when I was a postdoc at Imperial College in London.
0: I remember the first time we talked. I think the only time we talked about a mm-hmm. year ago. That's how long this podcast has been in the making. Mm-hmm. You said, "Oh, Jai Mungo, Jai Mungo, Wait, I I went to school with your brother. Okay. Mm-hmm. Do you mind telling me a story about my brother?
1: Well, I think he's a genius. Um, I you know I I remember when I okay so first of all. Um, One thing I think is interesting to to note is that, you know, um, my parents immigrated from Trinidad when I was a kid to New York City. And, you know, all throughout my my growing up and um, I kind of was, I was alone, I was the only one, you know, there were lots of other really bright people around me, but I I felt like, okay, I'm this immigrant guy from the Bronx and there weren't really many people I saw that looked like me or that was from a similar Mm -hmm. cultural background. Um, and maybe you take that in as a young person as maybe, well, maybe I'm not meant to be as good as everyone. And I'm just speaking as a younger person when I was a teenager and you know, in, into college. So when I went to UBC and I met this guy, um, Sebastian Jai um, who was at the blackboard like, like completely destroying it. I mean, he was like a, you know, me and Damien, the other grad students We looked at this guy like, you know, this guy is like, you know, this guy is like a total badass. Um, um, He just kind of knew everything. And he was also, you know, one of the things that I realized I was so, um, had left an impression on me. Actually, he actually inspired this in me. So if there's something I say I owe uh, Sebastian, it was... um, that he was not only somebody that was highly versed in quantum field theory and string theory. I mean, he got a postdoc to go to Princeton, right? The top place in the world at that time. One of the top places for theoretical physics. Um, So he not only did that. I mean, was that good, right? That (laughs) he got the top postdoc in the world. Um, But he was versed also in condensed matter theory. He was, you know, so he was one of these people that he was versed in all these branches of theoretical physics and that really was the thing that allowed me to break the chains of um the disciplinary boundaries that we create for ourselves he was somebody that really inspired that so um and, and so anyway meeting him also gave me a confidence booster because i was like oh wait a minute look at this you know this other like you know um, um I guess he's from Trinidad, uh, Tr- Canadian Trinidadian, right? Or is that right?
0: But he was born in Trinidad as well. Oh,
1: I. so it's okay. So yeah, from, from my background, that was just like the top guy, you know, the top one of the top grad students in the world in, in theoretical physics. So that gave me a real confidence booster that, you know, and then we also spoke a lot. We talked a lot of physics and I learned a lot from him. He actually was the one that taught me, taught me wedge products when I was a grad student. Nice. Give Sebastian a big hug for me.
0: I will, man. And tell him to come so, visit me. <laughs> uh, did you have doubts about your own mathematical ability or your own, if whether or not you could, not that you wanted to, maybe I'm sure you had doubts, should I go into this? But could you? Did you have the ability? So did you ever doubt your own ability? Big time, big time.
1: Yeah, big time. And I remember, I um, in fact, I remember when I was a graduate student, I knew I was deeply interested in the big questions and I but I actually was going to settle for less and because internally I didn't didn't feel I had I had what it took and everybody else was just really mathematical and really knew things that I could I didn't know and I felt was going to be such a learning curve. Um, And I remember one time um, um, that we had this visitor um, that has come visit Brown's physics department. and he was of you know he was like one of the most brilliant strength theorists and he carried himself as if he was some kind of guru i mean he used to walk or walk like i was like is this guy some kind of yogi or something uh and his name was somet das right and he used to come visit um the strength theorist brown and he'd be down week and he'd he'd be there on, on, on weekends and one day i was in, you know hanging out and i he started talking to me and i was like why is this strength theorist talking to me I, um and I, I, then I asked him, I said, I felt comfortable. I was like, is that something that like, you know, if you want to do string theory, um, how good do you, I mean, do you need to do this? He goes, no, no, no. All you have to do is be passionate about it and just go for it. And, and somehow the way he said it to me made me feel like, well, maybe I can do this, right? So I definitely, I, I owe, I definitely want to give, uh, I owe it to Submit Das, you know, for, for kind of playing that role, just saying, hey, you can do this. Um, but, you know, that, that still lives with me. That still lives with me. I still feel like I, yeah, I, you know, my strengths are not with, um, you know, knowing a whole bunch of math. Although I love math and I love learning from mathematicians and I, you know, um, you know, there's a place where we play, we have to play on our strengths and know what they are. In my case, I'm, you know, kind of intuitive. I have pictures, I play with thought experiments it's important to talk to people to have soundboards and one of the things that's very important to me is actually having soundboards that are not always experts in my field yeah so i find things like this to be very useful also to my research like conversations like this you're doing a service to physics research
0: (laughs) thank you thank you so what age was that when you (coughs) met with the guy summit i believe his name is summit das
1: Yes, Sumit Das. Um, I was a first-year graduate student, and I was actually trying to be an experimentalist at the time. Not, not because it wasn't um, experimental, experimental work is as hard or even harder than, um, than theory work. So <laughs>
0: that's the asterisk um, for Brian Keating.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, but um, I guess what I'm saying was that it was a time where what my real interests were, I was suppressing it. Um, because I didn't think, uh, so yeah, it was, I, I don't know, I think I was like 24, 23 years old. I'm 50 now, so.
0: Yeah, what advice do you have? Because there are quite a few people who are watching this who don't have a background in university. Maybe they have some <coughs> training in mathematics, but that's it. Maybe some rudimentary physics that they've seen from an MIT Open Courseware video. Mm-hmm. But they want to understand string theory, M theory, well, String M theory and loop quantum and so on, but they don't feel like they have it in them. Let's the average age of this person who emails me this or leaves comments about this tend to be 20, 30 and even 40. So I'm not sure if the age differences give yield different advice.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I would say, you know, look, if you can't, um, basically, yeah, that's a that's a really good one. I mean, it depends on you know whether or not you can maybe go back to some kind of school. But there are lots of you know online presence now, information online. Like um, I'm thinking about like, even things like uh, Lenny Susskind's course. Um, but, but even like one thing I find really interesting is that the Perimeter Institute has uh, online. They they have made. Um, open, you know, they've made um, their online seminar series. Mm -hmm. Jump in, like listen to these seminars, go online. Um, The other thing is um, there are some really good books now. So for example, like Lenny Susskind has a book called Theoretical Minimum, um, which I endorse a second. I mean, they're really good. I read them actually, you know. Um, It's a good place to kind of be, sort of build some foundation. And then actually go online and pull out some problem sets. And try playing working with these problem sets and get up, you know, join a group of friends and work through these problem sets together. I mean, in practicing problems, the reason why you want to practice things like problems that have been solved already is that you build an arsenal of of, of solved problems and they they can be used as as, um, a launch pad to solve unsolved problems, right? So kind of getting a sense of what's what's been solved out there. And then I actually recommend, um, one of the reasons why I actually, and this is not an advertisement, I literally wrote my second book um, p- precisely because I wanted to um, I wanted to um, um, fill a, vac- a a vacuum um, in terms of how people can start thinking about research problems. What, what are the cutting edge things that we're thinking about now? And it was written very much in the spirit of Richard Feynman's, um, you know, character of physical law and brief history, a brief history of time to kind of carve some space out exactly for that, for that person who wants to get a sense of what's out there. You know, what, what are people thinking about and, and what are the unsolved problems and what are the directions that people are afraid of or is, you know, um, is holding the field back. From, again, from the opinion of a, you know, so in other words, imagine I'm somebody's thesis advisor, right? Um, like a PhD thesis or a master's thesis advisor, and I and I had to disappear for a year, I would leave this book with with that thesis, mm. thesis student, right? So those are three things, three, three concrete things. I said so get yeah. your book. Get to, yeah. what's the book, the name of the book. And do you have it right in front of you? I don't have the I just gave my book away to a student of mine. It's um, okay. Well the book place is on screen. Yeah. The, the book is called Fear of a Black Universe, an outsider's guide to the future of physics. That's the subtitle.
0: Now, when I hear that, to me, it sounds like a book about race and science. Is it a book about that or exclusively about that or minorly about that?
1: Minorly about that. I'll say 10% of the book is about is about um, identity and science. Um, of course, we can include race in that, but we can include personality, different modes of ways of thinking, um, you know, but the title was also a play, it was a, you know, it was a... What's a, a nod to one of my favorite rap bands when I was in college called Public Enemy?
0: That's something <laughs> so. you and I also have in common. Not only are we from Trinidad, but we used to rap, although I think you used to do the beatboxing.
1: I was more of a beatbox and a beatmaker. I, I wish I could rap. So one of these days, we might have to do something together. <laughs> that would be great, wouldn't it?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, getting okay. you know what? First of all, about Brian Keating. Mm-hmm. Brian Keating's your friend, correct?
1: He's my best friend, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: I'm going to prove to you that he's not your friend see this yeah okay hold
1: on see that see that thumbnail yeah yeah no yeah, friend
0: yeah. no friend would leave your thumbnail like that that's the worst thumbnail i've ever seen of anyone <laughs> I'm,
1: I'm gonna tell brian to change yeah you that. gotta tell him okay that's oh, a good I'm one
0: just, i'm just that's a joke i'm just kidding around but still no, I, I actually, actually don't like, i don't what I actually the heck? For, yeah you caught him in the middle of a sneeze
1: and then right, you chose right. that right 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 i'm gonna i'm gonna uh um, get gonna, on him I will get on him about that.
0: Okay. How has the process of learning for you changed now that you're older? What would, if let's imagine you could advise your young self practices to keep, practices to drop, practices to adopt? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You're advising your 20, maybe even 25, 30 year
1: old self. Uh, about what though about-, about
0: learning something like string theory or learning something like
1: oh yes 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 i think it's important to combine practice with play um so rather than you know if i you know if i'm learning something you know, like the, the the equations of motion coming from varying the string world sheet action for example it's important that I not only know how to correctly vary the Euler-Lagrange, you know, how to obtain the Euler-Lagrange equations, right? And why the calculus of variation applies, that applied for a point particle would also apply for a string um, world sheet action. But it's important that once I get this, that I play with those equations. I literally play with them. I move them around. I play with the rules of the math. I break the, you know, I actually break the rules and see what happens. Like the same way a kid plays with a toy.
0: Huh? What would be an example of trying to break the rule? Just making a mistake, or what? Or making a purposeful mistake and seeing where it leads?
1: Yeah, make it, yeah literally make a purposeful mistake and see where it leads. Exactly.
0: That's interesting. Um,
1: yeah, so I'm one for playing with breaking the equa- break, breaking the the equations. Um, well, you know, you know, kids don't try it at home. So, but this is definitely something you could try at home and you might learn something. But when you go out and you give a talk, or you write up, you try to write a paper, you're obviously not going to put that mistake there. But it's you do those things just to see, you know. Um, again, that's kind of like, yeah, that to me is just like, you know, the idea of playing with, with, um, with things.
0: What would be an example of a time that you played, you purposefully did something incorrect in order to see where it lead? What would be a time that that led to an insight? Can you give me Well, I think idea? I think
1: the paper that I wrote with um with Michael Peskin and Shaheen Sheikh Jabari on leptogenesis or you know the, the origin of matter over antimatter. Um, we propose that this can take place during the period of um early universe called cosmic inflation. Um and that actually came from um putting a place filler in. So uh, uh, you know, so how do you create matter of antimatter? Well, you need to exactly have an anomaly. Um, and then what I was doing was I didn't know what the answer would be, but I put, an, I put the answer I needed to be in there, which clearly violated the Einstein equations. Right? And then after, like, you know, like, whatever, I mean, thinking about it, talking about it, having soundboards, it's important to have soundboards, you know, to have people that you can talk with who will not judge you, but actually take something dumb that you've said and throw it back to you in some meaningful, more meaningful way. So Michael Peskin, my postdoc advisor was that guy and Shaheen was that guy. So, um, and then next thing you know, it takes form. And next thing um, we discover, well, actually the real story about that was that we were thinking that it, it maybe was torsion, this idea of torsion that, mm-hmm. that would source the baronet symmetry that to turn out to not work. But again, the torsion thing had a tensorial structure meaning the way the indices were moving around. And um, when I was, I went to Caltech that year and I visited Mark Cameron, the great cosmologist, Mark Kaminski, And then I was telling Mark the idea and Mark goes, oh, you should take a look at this paper I wrote. It might be useful. And then when I look at the paper, it had actually, for other reasons, it had this chern Simons thing. When I came back to Stanford, we started playing with that and it turned out to work. Ah. So that's an, you know, an example of like, um, so I don't know if that was like deliberately making a mistake, but it was sort of like, yeah, I think that in this case you put it's a place like filler in. You're fudging. You're literally fudging. It's what Einstein did. You put a fudge factor in to make it work, right? For dark energy.
0: In this case, there was no anomaly, but you needed there to be an anomaly because there is an asymmetry.
1: We needed it to be a harmless and yeah a harmless anomaly.
0: Okay, so for the people listening, when you when there's that J in the current. J isn't always current as in electric charge current. Yes. It can be other types of conserved quantities or, or the quantities that need to be conserved. Yes. Okay. So, what would so in that example, it would look like d mu and then j mu at the top. What would that j represent for very good assuming? assuming Excellent. Okay.
1: So, this will be the current associated with leptons. So the electron is a lepton, the neutrinos are leptons, right? So these are the leptons. And there's a quantity called a lepton, the lepton number, right? Um, the same way you have like an electric charge there's actually a leptonic charge. And that leptonic charge, it can be violated by an anomaly. And that's, that, that one is fine because it's a so- so-called global anomaly. It doesn't depend on space-time. And those anomalies.
0: Sorry, I want to make sure what you I don't want to lose. Okay, so you said that the lepton charge can be violated by an anomaly. You mean to what, what do you mean when, it, when you say it can be violated by anomaly? It's not just because the way that I see it is that you have your theory and then you find out, oh, it's anomalous. It's not that, oh, I can make this anomalous because I feel like I can good. make any theory anomalous.
1: Very good. So the left in its standard model, the lepton, it turns out that the lepton current is not anomalous. With exception, and this is where the exception is, if you turn gravity on, there's a gravitational anomaly, and that is a gravit. The thing that's doing that is a gravitational Chern-Simons term, right? And and it turns out that if you have a gravitational configuration, meaning in a gravitational field that gives you a non-vanishing Chern-Simons gravitational term, it could source lepton number, right? Um So it can source, um, in this case the production of lepton, so you may not say source, it will create leptons. That's one way of thinking about it.: um,
0: You know, I want to talk about something that is, it sounds like it's not inspirational, but it is. There are certain no-go theorems in physics and in math, but let's talk about physics. What are some examples of no-go theorems that turned out to be a Go theorem? like you could find your way around it? Um, firstly, let's explain to, or you should explain to the audience what a no-go theorem is.
1: Very good. A no-go theorem is a a statement. So I'll give you an example of a no-go theorem and maybe I can, um, you know, um, actually let me, so a a no-go theorem is Weinberg's no-go theorem about, um, any adjustment mechanism for the cosmological constant. So the statement says that. You can't use, um, say, a, in this case, a scale of field with a potential um, to relax to, to relax the cosmological constant. And then he went and like actually did, did some calculations and showed that actually if you had such a theory, that you cannot use that to cancel out the cosmological constant. All right, and that is true. But in that theorem, and the- hear that sound. That's the sweet
0: sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best, converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories.
1: That theorem, there were some axioms, there were some assumptions about in this case that if that scalar field relaxes to a vac, a ground state, remember the field is can roll, and then it, when it gets to its ground state or to its minimum, the minimum of its potential, if that ground state Is Poincaré invariant, then what Weinberg said is complete is you know is true. But if the vacuum state is not Poincaré invariant, then that assumption that no-go theorem doesn't apply because you've relaxed that assumption. So now you you have a loophole. So you can now try. So then people realize that by now constructing so-called p of x theorems theories. Um, These are theories where the scalar field is actually, has a non-trivial kinetic term. Um, and those theories have ground states where the kinetic energy is still non-vanishing, right? And it's not a Poincare invariant vacuum. So recent manifestations of trying to solve the cosmological constant problem um, have, by really good people, have used um, those um, those types of relaxation mechanisms that evade Weinberg's no-go theorem or evades one of one, one of the assumptions of that no-go theorem.
0: The reason so I that said that helped. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. actually inspirational, and the reason is that yeah. it seems clear. Well, oh, you have a no-go. Someone said there is no way. Look, this is math. This is physics. There is no mm-hmm. way around it. But then you realize, well, there are hidden assumptions. You mentioned axioms. I I call them anthem memes, which are just unstated assumptions embedded in your question or embedded right. in your statement. Mm-hmm. So, and one of my favorite ones is is Witten, I think it was just Witten, but though it could be Witten and Weinberg in 1980, where he said, okay, if you want a spin-half, larger-than-spin-half particle, and it has a conserved, a Lorentz covariant current, it, it can't exist if it's massless. And then same mm-hmm. with it can't exist greater than one and be massless mm-hmm. and have a conserved stress-energy tensor. And then, right. so that se- seems to indicate, well, there can't be a graviton, because graviton has spin-two and mm-hmm. massless, supposedly. And no mm-hmm. charge, supposedly. Mm-hmm. But then, you and the assumption that was made is was so implicit that they never made it explicit, and they didn't realize. I, I don't know if they realized until someone else. I don't know. Maybe it's Juan Maldacena came along and said, "Well, okay, that's right. It it cannot exist in this space time." But it can exist in another space time, and I believe mm-hmm. that's part of the origin of the holographic principle. No, that's
1: very good. That's very good. I think um, excellent point. Now I don't, I don't have, a, I don't remember, but I can, um, I think though that the Weinberg-Witten theorem, um, wait, is it Weinberg? Does make an assumption about the underlying space sign. and I can see how anti-de Sitter space, which is the space sign um, AdS CFT is based on, holography, um, that version. Um, I could see how that could avoid the weinberg witten theorem. Exactly. Because in ADS-CFT, that's right, it's, um, it, it's a beautiful in the sense that the, the let me just, for the, re, for the um, yep. audience to yep, say please. that it basically is a theory that says that in gravity in one higher dimension, so let's like say I had a four-dimensional mm-hmm. gravity theory, it's completely encoded in a non-gravitational theory living at the boundary of that four-dimensional theory with no gravity. And that theory that has no gravity is related to Yang-Mills theory, where there's no gravity. And the idea here is that where does gravity, how does gravity emerge? And one, I think, simple-minded idea is that in the Yang-Mills theory, you can have condensates or degrees of freedom that emerge, that come together collectively, right, to then form the graviton, which would be a version of this Weinberg. If I need to get a graviton in the space-time, I have to build it out of the degrees of freedom, of the Yang-Mills theory and that I can see how that Weinberg-Witten theorem would have to be evaded.
0: Can you explain why is it that the graviton is said to have spin 2 when for some pe- for people who are just learning about this for the first time it seems arbitrary. Well, why are you saying the graviton has spin 2? Why are you saying that there's a particle associated at all with gravity? Because gravity we've been told since we've been teenagers it's not a force. It's the curvature of times and space space time and so on so firstly why does there have to be a particle associated with gravity in the same way there are particles associated with the other interactions and second why does it have to be spin two
1: mm-hmm. yeah so the spin will correspond in this case to the helicity of the particle and just like in gauge, i mean if you look at a gauge field a mu the index mu now becomes basically related to the um to the the um if i have a, a, a electromagnet wave propagating the polarization tensor, E mu, is carrying the information about the spin, about all the helicity in this case, meaning the the momentum projected onto how the particle is spinning. Okay. That's the helicity. So you can trace that back to the fact that this gauge field has one tensorial vector index, and space-time index. So if I now have a spin two particle out, I have two of these indices now, and that's exactly the tensorial form of the uh, transverse traceless gravitational perturbation. However, to say it's a quantum particle with spin to, is an extra, I would say, thing. General relativity um, doesn't tell you anything about you know, that. If I look at general relativity, it's a classical theory. But if I go through and I make the same procedure and say, oh, look, the same way I do quantum field theory, I work in Minkowski space, there's a procedure, right? Perturb the field, Gravitational field, there's a tiny perturbation, and then define some kind of state that uh, in uh, some sort of modes, you know, oscillations with creation and annihilation operators. Um, That's where you're gonna start seeing the spin two quantum numbers come pop out. But from where I stand, that isn't a that's not you know that's not part of general relativity. That's an extra assumption of doing quantum field theory right in a weakly curved space yeah
0: i'm sure you've heard weinstein say that maybe we shouldn't be quantizing gravity that we should be geometrizing the quantum have you taken a look at geometric unity i have i
1: have taken a a, a deep look at it yes
0: okay what are your thoughts
1: well i well you know i think well this it's um the the mathematics is definitely very you know very um um advanced um I think I think I think it's a beautiful idea. Actually, I think it's a really nice idea. The idea that I don't know what the word is, but you have you start off with four dimensions, the Lorentz group, and then you do this. You you th- you think of all the components, all the ten components um, in this four-dimensional world. Um, um, you let that vary. So there, therefore, you have a, a bundle structure, like a fiber, and all these components are now a fiber, a fiber over this four-dimensional space. And that somehow then gives you um, the, something that starts looking like a grand unified group. Maybe it's SO10 or something like that. So the 10 components of this fiber is like M4 fibered over its SO10, maybe. I, I, again, I'm, I'm bastardizing Eric's idea. But sure. I like this idea that somehow you just start with that data. And then, then you, the mathematics just naturally gives you this extra gauge structure. That seems to have embedded in the standard well. Now the devil's in the details, and I know that there's some criticisms that need to be ironed out. But I think that's kind of what we do when we do, do when we do good theory. You put it out, you you give it your best shot, you know. And especially if you're doing it alone, um, I think that then others jump in and then they they improve it or they they find a mistake. That, but that's that's actually that's what that's actually what the refereeing profit process is anyway. Any paper that I write, right? Well, the first thing is I write the paper or I work it out, I do something, I get far enough where I feel confident I have something. But there's always time places where I have blind spots. I give a seminar, and the seminar is usually where I get feedback before yeah. I put the paper out. Then I put the paper out, mm-hmm. and then I put up for publication. And then usually the referees, the referees further help me um understand what's going on, actually. And if they find a bad, that is not publishable, fine, I learned something new, I move on. Uh, that's happened to me many times. So I think that, you know, um, I'm that component sort of, is missing. I think that component is, uh, he, yeah, I think that component is, um, is missing, precisely because you know, Eric is, um, you know, sort of going at a lot of this alone. And um, I encourage him, he put it out, and I think that people should read it and take it very seriously and, and, and play with it and, um, and scrutinize it. And I think that there might be some gems in there, okay, even if it's not, it doesn't turn out to pan out to be correct in, you know, um, in terms of what it's, what it's trying to solve, which is unifying the standard model with general relativity in this new way. At the very least, for me at least, I I'm reading it or I've read it so that I can learn some things, and I'm I'm definitely I've definitely learned some interesting things, and it got me thinking about um, unification in 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 different ways now. So it's been it's valuable. We should have more of that.
0: Have you read Wolfram's paper or Wolfram's physics project?
1: Um, A little bit, not I didn't. uh, You know, the answer is I intend to. I intend to when I have uh, more uh, some time. Yeah. Um, I do know that it does, it is related to some ideas in graph theory. I also think that, again, it's a, it's, um, it's some nice ideas out there. It may strike some resonance with other things like matrix theories and other approaches. Um, but I'm all one for let's populate the, the theory landscape with ideas and let's scrutinize it and, and, and learn from it.
0: The reason I ask that is that there is a direct quote from you, I believe, in your autodidactic universe paper about how there's how reality works. And then there's how we model it. And our models are somewhat like approximations, but then they get closer and closer to the real world. And then you start to wonder how much of the real world is these computational techniques underneath. I don't have the exact line, but it reminds me of almost verbatim. That's what Wolfram thinks. He thinks because computers are so powerful. This is not exactly what he thinks or why he thinks and i'm just paraphrasing but computers are so powerful and the computation under his models are so general and so powerful and so predictive in a in a certain sense that perhaps that is what the universe is it's computation underneath
1: that's beautiful um i have to well that's beautiful that's what we said <laughs> So <laughs> it's amazing you forget what you write <laughs>
0: Okay, I know, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I, I can keep, honestly, I can keep talking to you for hours
1: because no, But we should do, we should, um, I do have to run off and have dinner actually with Jim Gates, who's somebody I think you should have as well, you know.
0: I would like to. I also wanted to bring to the forefront for, because there are quite a few mathematicians and physicists who watch this podcast. And for the physicists in particular, there's some, I'm interested in unification. That's the name of the channel, Theories mm. of Everything. There's been proposed for quite some time now, almost 20 years now, that geometric algebra should be seen as the standard force for unification or the standard language of unification. David Heston, I believe, Mm -hmm. he's agreed Mm -hmm. to be on the show. I just have to book a date with him. Mm -hmm. Categorical, category theory as well. So categorical Mm -hmm. unification, whatever that means, that Mm -hmm. was proposed by quite a few people. James Weatherwall comes to mind and Elaine Landry had a book on quantum, sorry, on category theory for philosophers, but it had a few sections on category theory as applied to physics for the purpose of unification so i'm right. extremely interested in that and bring a bit more attention to that there are, there's cole furry have you heard of cole cole furry yeah yeah yeah, cole. yeah 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 so i want to have her on i've just yeah so, so, to she's
1: she's, she, she's done very cool stuff yeah
0: yeah i yeah. i i love her little her mini youtube series on the quaternion yeah. and then chiara marletto i want to have on however i don't know she's like ghosting me i don't doesn't matter how many times i send her an email she will not respond and i don't know why i don't know if what's, she has
1: if, what's her name
0: chiara marletto it's the student of david joich
1: oh yeah i don't know her at all um um yeah i don't know her at all uh,
0: you gotta get going i got to maybe half the questions but, so, no no but uh, let's no let's
1: reschedule and, and continue we can we can do that
0: yeah, so let's I'm do
1: I'm, I'm around. So um, I'm I just literally just got set up today. So now that I got the system going, just let me great. know, and I'm happy to continue talking. Um great. and uh, and I'm also like a little bit tired and frazzled. I think the next time you get me, um, now that I know kind of your style, I'll be able to um, you know, do some 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 better stuff. Yeah,
0: sure. All right. Well, you did great. Oh, thanks, so, man. Whatever
1: is better it will be acceptable. Yeah, and yeah, and seriously, tell um. Tell um, Sebastian, say what's up. I, I will. I will. We, the field, the field, messing. But I'm sure he's. But I'll actually, I'd like to get some advice from him about something. I'm also thinking. I'm a, between you and me. I'm actually looking at my options out, outside of physics these days. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, yeah.
0: So he's yeah. in math finance. I don't know if you know.
1: Exactly. So I'm actually thinking about that direction myself.
0: Oh. Okay. Because
1: because you know I'm friends with Jim Simons. So why not oh. you know? So I kind of want to talk with him and get some, you know, uh-huh. talk with him. You know. Yeah. So let me know if you're interested.
0: The podcast is now finished. If you'd like to support conversations like this, then do consider going to patreon.com/curtjaimungal. slash That is Kurt Jaimungal. It's support from the patrons and from the sponsors that allow me to do this full-time. Every dollar helps tremendously. Thank you.